Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey friends, welcome back to the final in our series of uncut interviews. As I've told you, this last year and a half of isolation and constant stress has been wearing on me and I've needed a break. That's why I've taken a couple months off from making fully produced episodes to give myself some room to breathe. This is the last of the episodes I recorded about a year ago that never got to air. I've been offering them in their unedited state, so it would take a bit less effort on my part to get them to you. So here's the good news. Next week, we'll be back with a regular episode. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's settle in for today's conversation with Danielle. There are a couple of things you should know about this conversation. First, this was recorded early in quarantine when we were all still trying to adjust to a new way of living. So you'll hear noise from Danielle's life in this interview, including her barking dogs. Also, Danielle is a therapist. While her identity isn't revealed in this interview, there are still places where she felt that because of her position, it wouldn't be appropriate to share some things. And I support her in that. Danielle is a 35-year-old cisgender female. She describes herself as straight, monogamous, married, and premenopausal. She describes her body as athletic. I'm so pleased to introduce Danielle. Danielle, I am so pleased to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Leah. And I apologize in advance to your listeners um, for my dog, Sydney. Who's you know, making it's okay. her presence known. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we are recording during the time of pandemic isolation, and this is just what life looks like right now. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's get started. The first question I ask everyone is, what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Hmm. My first memory of sexual pleasure. I, I don't, well, so I don't, I don't help me if, guide me if this doesn't exactly answer your question. Yeah. But I remember the first movie that I sat through all the way from start to finish. And there, it, you know, at the heart of it, it was a love story. It was Cinderella. Mm. And I remember being so sucked in this world and will they, won't they? Will he find the slipper? Will it fit? And I remember sort of feeling that rush of seeing these two characters that I had fallen in love with share their first kiss. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what is this? And then I started making all my Barbie and Ken dolls do that because I was like, I need to understand what this thing is. Um, ah, and I was yeah. probably four or five. 
I love that. Yeah. So was that something that you then started like watching movies or paying attention to television, looking for that feeling or that experience? Yeah, that's a good, that's another really good question. I think, I think so. I really, um, I, there were certain aspects of movies or TV shows. I, I'll say like the, I, what I now understand are the points of tension. So either, you know, the inciting incident or, um, you know, like the payoff. So, or a great adventure, wherever the, the, wherever there was either the most excitement, the most pleasure or the most extreme, I was really curious about that as a little person. So I would reenact um, maybe dangerous moments. And and by dangerous, I'm saying like in movies, like all dogs go to heaven or Aladdin, like I would, I would role play those scenarios. And I would also reenact either in my mind or with my toys, the romantic elements of those stories too. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And at what point did you take that from sort of solo play, solo reenactment to wanting to act that out with another person. Yeah. So I have always, I, I wouldn't have called myself boy crazy, but I had always been interested in boys. So I remember, and I don't know how much of this is my own memory or how much of this is memory that I've adopted through my, my parents retelling of it. But mm-hmm. I had a boyfriend named William when I was in preschool or kindergarten. And, um, you know, but as my boyfriend, we would sit next to each other during show and tell, you know, sometimes he would share an extra apple slice with me. And I remember feeling emotionally like very, um, looking back now, knowing what I know now, like it was very validating to feel chosen in that way. And, um, and I think pretty much from that point on, it was either I had a boyfriend or I didn't have a boyfriend, but if I didn't have a boyfriend, I was interested in one. Oh, interesting. Or ten, so but <laughs> from from a very young age, then mm-hmm. you were sort of coupling up. Yeah, mm-hmm. and wow. and I never there was there was there's never there hasn't been in my adult life, and there wasn't even when I was young. Like there was always like that sense of loyalty. Like this is my boyfriend. Now, even if that lasted three weeks, like this is my boyfriend for these very committed three weeks, hmm. you know, and then that might change and might be a different boyfriend, but I'd be very committed to that one too. Huh. Mm-hmm. And so at what point did it go from that sort of, it sounds like more innocent sharing apple slices kind <laughs> of boyfriend mm-hmm. to the, I want to maybe do more than hold hands. I maybe want to make out with this boyfriend. Hmm. My first, my first kiss, I think and I, it's interesting because I remember like certain moments, but my very first kiss, I don't have a strong emotional attachment to because I think it was playing spin the bottle at camp. And I think mm-hmm. it was with a person that I wasn't overly enthused by. So I was like, mm-hmm. oh, did that. Um, I remember the first person I was excited to kiss, like my first real, real kiss where I liked them and they liked me and I hoped it would happen, but I didn't know if it would happen. Like I had all that tension build was I'm pretty sure my sophomore year in high school. So like, I, I mean, I think I had little, little moments here or there. Um, but none that have like a, a strong memory, but the, the one in my sophomore year, I was like, Whoa, like body shocks, electricity. Um, mm-hmm, yeah. And was this someone who you had already been dating for a while? Or was this a brand new person? 
So we, you could, it's hard to call it dating because we didn't go anywhere. Uh (laughs) We didn't do, but um, I think notes were passed and there were awkward exchanges near a locker. And then, you know, we would walk down hallways, but I remember he invited me over to his parents' house to watch a movie. And I, that was before I knew want to come over and watch a movie meant want to fool around. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, sure. Yeah. Let's watch like, and I think we watched the devil's advocate with Keanu Reeves. Oh my gosh. And that's a, that's a, I only saw that movie recently for the first time and it's sexy. I intense. Well, let me tell you, we probably only saw the first five minutes of it. (laughs) So I don't, I, and then the rest was just, um, kissing. I think it was kissing on the floor at the foot of his bed because his parents had a rule that the door had to stay open. So we had to get really crafty about where could we sort of have privacy. (laughs) And he was a perfect gentleman. He asked me, you know, he asked for consent before that was even a thing. He was like, is it okay if I kiss you? And and then it was, it was a good, it was a good kiss. Well, it sounds like it was a good makeout session, not just a good kiss. Yeah, very true. Very true. (laughs) (laughs) And how long did the two of you continue that uh, relationship. I don't know if you want to call it a relationship. Ah, uh, so uh, his first name was Eddie. What is he's still alive? Um, Eddie. And your question about whether or not I was monogamous. Well, Eddie, I think he was monogamish, and uh, I found out shortly thereafter that he was also making out with other girls. And so I was like, "Thank you, next, Eddie." Yes, but it was oh. still a great. It was still a great moment, and I. It's it's funny because I think it just showed how emotionally emotionally invested I probably wasn't because I I was more like that's a bummer. Well, on to the on to the next. Yeah. So it didn't. It sounds like it didn't affect your sense of self. Like I'm not enough, or why didn't he love me the way that I loved him? You know, in that 15 year old way. Not not this one. I've had. I've definitely had those, but no, Mm -hmm. this one. This one didn't. It was. It was a really good, sweet, innocent first makeout session. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so what happened next? I I mean, we don't need to go through every boyfriend, but sort of what was the next big milestone for you? Sure. So um, I didn't have a lot of boyfriends or boyfriend-ish in high school. I actually, I remember thinking at the time why did it seem like people were coupling off and not me? Mm. And um, probably because I had had a boy that was a friend that I would call my boyfriend and I was doing air quotes during that time. For, I don't know why this isn't a visual medium. <laughs> um, but, you know, that sort of back and forth with, with boys always seemed to just happen when I was really young. And then it really kind of came to, at least it felt like it came to a screeching halt around seventh, eighth grade year, and then didn't really have a boyfriend until my sophomore year. No, my junior year. Yeah, my junior year. I was 16. And um, I'm not going to use his first name because it's pretty distinctive. But um, yeah, so he, we were in a theater production together. In yeah, he was a grade below me. And, you know, he was this sort of misunderstood artistic kind of punk kid. And, um, 
what I realized that the qualities that I thought were so interesting then really were, he was just kind of an asshole. Mm. But um, I was like, wow, like he doesn't care what people think. And now I understand too, that's also kind of that that dynamic between like codependents and narcissists. What, what we perceive as confidence is really a lack of empathy. And I'm not calling this person in my life a a narcissist, but I'm, I'm kind of, um, you know, just drawing a maybe a correlation to something else that I've learned over time. But basically, he seemed very confident and very aloof and different than than I was as someone who was very much eager to please, um, you know, liked to hit all my marks and do things the right way. And I cared about what people thought of me. And he just was the opposite of that. And then at the end of the production, I found out he liked me. And we started hanging out. And he asked, I remember he sent me a note in school that was um, a picture of Will Smith. And it was like, the note was like, Will, you, and I think it was like a picture of a horseshoe. I can't, ugh. It, it was like a series of like really funny pictures, but I was basically mm-hmm. asking like, will you date me? And we did. And we dated what felt like innocently and fun for maybe a month. And then um, my first sexual experience was forced intercourse with this person. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, are you willing to talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, and I'll okay. just kind of police myself as I feel like I need to. But okay. yeah, please feel free to ask questions. Right. Absolutely. Um, what was sort of the... Um, uh, how do I ask this? Um, what led up to that encounter? Mm-hmm. Like, were you alone had you been talking about having sex sort of like Mm -hmm. where were you emotionally yeah that's a um i don't think i've ever thought of that actually we were making out a lot i'd say you know a lot of heavy petting um not more than that and we hadn't had a conversation about sex so when it when it took that turn it really took me by surprise and um and i but i what i remember I don't have much memory of the actual event itself, but what I do remember is shortly thereafter um, trying to make sure. And of course, knowing what I know now, that makes sense. That's uh, that can be a common trauma response. But I remember like wanting to reassure him Mm -hmm. and make sure he was okay because he seemed to be upset or have guilt or and be really concerned. And I spent uh, focused a lot of energy right afterwards reassuring him. And because he would during what I also remember is he was saying, he was saying things to me like, I love you Mm. during that. And so either he didn't know what he was doing or he did and had just a very, I mean, either way, he had a very different experience in that moment than I did. Um, And I get this question a lot. And I actually work with a lot of assault survivors in the work that I do. And a a question I've been asked before was, did you say no? Mm -hmm. And the honest answer is no, I didn't. Mm -hmm. I withdrew. And I cried. And like the whole time, and I didn't move, I didn't react, I didn't respond, I just sort of froze inside myself. And, and then I think I emotionally detached, I just dissociated and then came back in my body shortly after it was done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So obviously, in your work, you know this, but I'm going to just pause here for a second to, uh, to affirm that just because we don't say no, does not mean that we have given consent, that it is still an assault, it is still a um, a non-consensual act, even if it's not violent. 
um, the only consent, the only consensual act is one to which you are actively and enthusiastically saying yes. Mm-hmm. A lack of a yes does not mean that, or wait, did I get that wrong? <laughs> um, just because you haven't said no doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you have said yes. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's very much what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can really relate with that myself. Like all of the experiences I've had that I, you know, I would have told you at the time that I was consenting because mm-hmm. I wasn't saying no. But now as I look back, a lot of those were non-consensual experiences. Yeah, I think I to protect myself for about two, two and a half years after what I, what I told myself it, because there's also, I think a lot of things that were told about sex before it, it happens, particularly in school. Like we're told it's painful. We're told that you bleed. We're told that it could be awkward or uncomfortable. We're, we're, we're given sort of a set of, we're handed a set of expectations. Um, and, you know, also a lot of, uh, expectations that, you know, boys are supposed to want it more and girls are supposed to, you know, desire less there. And so it, it fit a lot of the stories that I was told about what that experience would be. And he was someone that I really liked and really cared about. And he told me he loved me. I'm like, well, gosh, if he told me he loved me, then that must be what this was. Um, because the alternative would mean that I got really hurt and Mm -hmm. it was easier at that moment in time to write that off as just a blip and a really uncomfortable experience um, than to actually process what that meant. And I've spent a lot of time after the fact, a lot of processing of that. Yeah. So in the aftermath of that, did you remain in relationship with him or did you break up with him? You did. Yeah. And that also is, is not uncommon. Yeah. I needed to make, knowing what I know now, I needed to make it okay for myself. And also staying with him meant for whatever reason in my mind, it meant I wasn't a victim and something that I've, I've articulated later too, um, to, you know, different people that I've worked with over the years through my own healing, like my own therapists and counselors, friends, mentors is that there's, for me, there was this, I didn't re I wasn't conscious of this at the time, but it felt like he had taken something from me and I needed to get that back from him. And that meant either from getting his approval or getting him to remain interested in me. And it, it really, um, it took me a long time to realize that the thing that I thought was gone was really never taken from me. Um, and that my healing and, you know, I wasn't going to find anything more about myself through him or any other person, but that took time. That took significant time for me to learn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long did the two of you remain together? I believe, I believe he broke up with me about a month after mm-hmm. that. And then we still, we did kind of like a on again, off again, back and forth for about maybe, maybe a two, three, four months after that. Like it, it would be off for a period of time and then on for a period of time. I mean, he got this really played up the whole tortured artist thing. So, I mean, I remember one of the ways he came back when he like, he like drew a picture of me as a solar system. And I was like, Oh my God, he's so deep. He just gets it. And it just, Oh, 
Yeah. Thinking about it now, it makes me sick. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. And I assume that you are continuing to be sexual with each other through that time? Um, a few more times. Yeah. Yeah. And were those, would you, would you in today's understanding call mm-hmm. those, um, other times consensual? Oh, oh yes. I, w- I would call them consensual. Um, he, uh, because the, the first time my, my arms were, were held, like I was pinned down and that wasn't the case the, the other previous few times. And what's Not interesting. being pinned down doesn't necessarily mean you've consented though. It could still be very coercive. Um, here's what I'll say it. So my body responded to those interactions. It, it responded and had pleasure response. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowing what I know now about healthy, sort of wholehearted mind, body, all of that connected, wonderful sex, like knowing what I know now about it, um, I wouldn't call those great sexual experiences, even even after the fact. Um, yeah. But I think it's too hard for me to answer that honestly, because I was trying so hard with each time after that first assault, I was trying so hard to prove to myself that I was okay. Yeah. So I don't know if I can really honestly answer that. Yeah, it's super confusing. And I think that that's actually really important to put out there and, and just normalize the fact that that happens for trauma survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to say that just because your body has an autonomic pleasure response does not mean that you are actually consenting. Like those two things, it is possible to have a non-consensual experience in which your body goes into an orgasm response. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is deeply confusing because our assumption is, well, if I had a pleasure response, that must have meant that I was asking for it. Yeah. And that's not necessarily the case. Our body has automatic autonomic responses. Mm -hmm. And um, just be, you know, often if we're being assaulted, that's not going to happen. But sometimes it does. And it does not mean in any way that you were party to your assault. I actually didn't know that that even was possible until I actually heard, um, I can't remember what year this was, early 2000s, Tyler Perry was interviewed on Oprah uh, back when she had her like original Oprah Winfrey show. And he talked about his own sexual abuse and sexual assault when he was a young, 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 young little boy. And he talked about how he felt like his body failed him or betrayed him because, you know, as a, as a young, young boy, he, his body would respond in the way that your body does when it's stimulated. And um, I, that was, I remember that to this day, it was like, it was like a lightning bolt just shot through my nervous system. Like, that, that that was even possible. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was just a, a really powerful, validating thing to hear. Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't know until that moment that that was even a thing. Because I also, I think I was in college then. So I was nowhere near on a mental health track. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. 
Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you and we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling intimate life and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. So after things finally ended with this boy, Mm -hmm. what was sort of the next big um, event in your romantic and sexual life? I I went through a series of, um, I think I, I kind of armored up and kind of went on the offensive with, with guys. If, if boys showed me interest or acted interested in me, I would act really tough. I would act aloof. Um, I, I sort of did the opposite of vulnerability and people pleasing. It's almost like I, and what I understand now too, is that's my, that was my shame coming mm-hmm. through. It's like, I don't, something must be wrong with you if you're interested in me. Cause like, you know, so, but I would, but it almost became like a game. Like I wanted the attention and then I would push it away when I got it. And I didn't let anyone else get close until maybe f- uh freshman year of college it was the first boyfriend I had had since then. And and again, knowing what I know now, I would say he was probably my first true boyfriend, like true, sweet, innocent love. He incredibly generous heart, incredibly generous, um, just emotionally, physically, in all of those ways. He he wanted to take care of me and honor me. And and it was during that relationship, I think that I I came to terms with what my first experience was and how wrong it was. And unfortunately, you know, that relationship, he really took, I think the brunt of a lot of the, a lot of my pain coming to the surface that I had spent the rest of high school kind of stuffing down. Mm. I, um, I want to just back up to the first half of that answer for a moment where you, you were talking about like wanting the attention, but then pushing it away when it mm-hmm. came. And I, I think you and I can both recognize that as a trauma response. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is very much what, um, the, the boy on the other side of that reaction, interaction will experience that and then shame the girl for being a cock tease. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, I, it's interesting. That's the first time that that's clicked in for me in quite such a concrete way mm-hmm. that, 
this thing that that boys experience and shame girls for is often actually a trauma response in the mm. girls. Um, but nobody has language for that. That's so, interesting. Yeah. And thinking about that a little bit more too, I looking back at what just about everyone I dated after that first, um, I was no longer interested in the dark and mysterious guys. Like <laughs> I wanted them bright, shiny, borderline, you know, on a improv comedy true. Like I, I wanted the bubbly effervescent, the sweeter, the more wholesome, the better, because knowing what I know now, I was really craving safety. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, bad boys, tall, dark and mysterious. No, I don't think I've actually, I, I haven't actually thought about that until this moment, but I think there was some, like, I didn't want a mysterious, Oh God, even saying that, like if someone's got that sort of brooding, like, Oh, I'm just so mysterious. Like, um, yeah. Oh shoot. Who is James Dean? Mm -hmm. Like that dark misunderstood. I'm like, you need therapy. You're not <laughs> yes. like, just, Ugh, I don't have time for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just never connected how that, how they're probably really, there probably are many threads that connect back to my own experiences that made that how, gosh, sorry. I'm just, <laughs> no, that's culture, really but. interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, with that first boyfriend in college, you said mm -hmm. that he bore sort of the brunt of a lot of that. Yeah. What did that look like in your uh, relationship? A lot of, a lot of crying, um, crying after sex or needing to stop sex to cry and not knowing where it was coming from and bless him, bless him, bless him. He, um, he did not, he never guilted me or shamed me or made me feel like that that was a problem. He just, you know, he, our relationship could kind of be summed up as just like a big bear hug. He just mm. was really sweet and generous. I mean, he was completely confused. He had no idea really what was going on or what was wrong. But I think he maybe had more intelligence that I'm giving him credit for because he, he knew enough to know that probably what I just needed was to be held and let it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing for a man in his late teens and early 20s. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. yeah. Had you shared with him your earlier experiences? Like, were you cognizant enough of your own experience to be able to share it? Not until that relationship. And actually, um, what I remember, I remember really like the awareness, like it went from a suppressed you know, realization to in the front of my consciousness when, um, when Kobe Bryant was accused of assault, mm. however many years ago that was, mm -hmm. maybe 15 years ago. So it's had, yeah. And, um, I remember working in retail and I was in the break room. I used to, I used to work at Coldwater Creek. I don't know if anyone listening. I love that store. They don't, they're not here anymore, but I, remember, <laughs> but the, the, there were like the women who would sell the merchandise on the floor who knew the product, but, um, the, they had, they always hired a couple of, you know, young whippersnappers to run the register. And so that was what I did. But the place was always filled with the best baked goods in the break room. <laughs> so I remember, but I remember being in the break room and I overheard, um, a group of women on their break talking about, you know, this event that they were hearing about on the news and they all had a different take. And I remember, one woman in particular was just really indignant. It's just, I mean, what did that woman think was going to happen if she went up to his hotel room? And, and, you know, what, and just, there was a lot of, um, a lot of really strong opinions. And I, what I remember 
I remember kind of feeling stuck. I couldn't physically move. And then I just started to perspire heavily. Like, like it was like kind of running down my face. It may have looked like tears, but it definitely wasn't tears. It was perspiration. And I just, I felt stuck and frozen and I was sweating. And then I felt nauseous. It may have been close to a panic attack. I don't think it fully got there, but my whole body had this physical, visceral response. And then I had this thought clear as day. Oh my God. I was assaulted. Mm. Oh my God. And I, and then there were just waves after waves after waves of, Oh my God, this is what happened to me. Oh my God, this happened to me. This, this happened to me. And then it, and then it was, and I didn't know that that happened to me. Mm. And I just, and that was sort of like the second wave of shame that kind of came quickly after the first crash. The second crash was, and you didn't, you didn't know it. You didn't say, you didn't talk about it. Um, because when I was really, really young, maybe, gosh, I don't know, seven or eight, um, I was pinned down by some boys uh, in behind like a playground at a daycare center. And the luckily, one of the daycare providers um, kind of caught what was happening before it escalated too far. But I remember in that moment, you know, telling my parents and we went to the police and we made a police report. And, and so in my mind, and it's particularly to what we understand about assault in the media, right? Like, you know, the, <laughs> you're supposed to be very solemn and very, like, you're supposed to, you're supposed to have, you're supposed to look a little broken and act yeah. a little broken and bruised. And, and then, you know, you have to stand up for it and you have to, you have to fight either in a courtroom or make a police report. And, you know, it, it had to tick these boxes and, um, for it to be real. Yes. Or for it to be valid. Yeah. And so it was sort of, I felt, I was actively grieving and processing that experience and also feeling like there was nowhere to put it. I didn't have a place. I didn't have a report to make. I didn't want to care to find him or even know if I could find him to be like, you did this to me. It just. Yeah. And so the boyfriend, the relationship I was in at that time, um, he, he, yeah, he just sat and listened to whatever I felt like sharing at the time or whatever I needed to share. Mm. kind of helped me through it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, something I didn't ask you about from your younger years is mm -hmm. masturbation. Mm -hmm. Did you discover masturbation at some point during your earlier years? Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I don't remember my exact age. Um, but yeah, I did. And, and it was, and it never felt my, my parents, did a really good job. At least I feel like, I mean, I'm biased, but they're my parents, but I, I feel like my parents did a really good job of making as much as they could making sex and my sexual body parts, um, kind of like an open topic of discussion. Like it mm -hmm. was, it was open if I had a question or if I was confused about something or wanted to understand something, I felt like they were a safe space. Both of them, you know, my dad at different times and my mom at different times. And so I don't remember us ever talking about masturbation, but I remember when I did discover it and, and when that became kind of a part of my sexual, my sexual makeup, I never remember feeling shame or secretive or like this was wrong or, and I don't even remember because I, I often hear this sometimes with, with clients or even friends too of like feeling like I somehow, cause you know how kids kind of have their own kind of heliocentric view of, oh my gosh, I must be the only one who's doing this or I'm yes. the only one who knows about this. I, I didn't feel weird or unique or different in any way by that. Mm -hmm. It just kind of was like, Oh, that was fun. Now let's go do something else now. <laughs> 
So the reason that I wanted to go back and pick that up is mm-hmm. a question about whether during this time that you're sort of working out the old trauma response mm-hmm. with the 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 following boyfriends, Mm -hmm. were you continuing to have sexual pleasure Mm. in, in either partnered sex or in masturbation, solo sex? So no, I, um, I think that kind of shut down until my first college relationship. Yeah, no, Mm -hmm. I, in that, in those push pull there, there weren't any like trysts or, sexual encounters with other people. And I mean, I hope I'm an accurate historian in this because I, I, I don't feel like I did, but to be honest with you, it's, it's very possible that I might've, but I don't think so. I don't think any of us is a really accurate historian, (laughs) 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 but that doesn't really matter. What matters is our own, you know, the feelings that we recorded and the experiences we recorded. I think I was more, I was more um, interested in the intention and the power that I thought I had than um, than sex at, mm-hmm. at that time when I w- it was I felt powerful when someone was interested, um, and I felt powerful when I could push it away, and probably because I didn't feel powerful in that moment where you know my choice was sort of taken away, um, I think I was reclaiming that power or that sort of artificial sense of dominance, and but that. I don't remember that translating in sort of more sex. Mm. Mm-hmm. At what point do you feel like you were able, if at all, mm-hmm. to really fully reclaim yourself as a sexual being? Hmm. That's a good question too. You know, if I'm being as honest as I can be in this moment, I don't think it was until I met my husband, actually, mm-hmm. um, because I understood, I think, love in a relationship in a deeper, 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 deeper way. Um, and it was, I, I was at the beginning and I can, it just kind of continues to evolve that way. Just that sort of deepened sense of safety and intimacy um, and I hope I'm not speaking for him too much, but I do think that one of the the joys we have found in in our committed relationship, because we've been together now, our in our total, I think our relationship, we've been together 10 and a half years and we've been married for five, that there's, by continuing to look within ourselves and each other in our relationship, this deepened sense of intimacy has made that part of our relationship too better. I mean, mm-hmm. I think frequency and th- there's definitely been ebbs and flows and flubs, right? I mean, we've, we've, <laughs> we've, we've had accidents too. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I, I think, yeah, I don't think I fully reclaimed all of that and all that sex can be until I met him. So it sounds like you have a pretty fulfilling sex life. Is that Mm. an accurate representation? Yeah, I think we both want it more. (laughs) I think we both want it more. (laughs) We like. I think the. I think for both of us, there's a big element too. We 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 feel desired with each other. Like we feel desire for each other, and that is. I think in terms of like ego or esteem, it's esteem building to feel wanted. And I think um, we both have uh, 
I don't know if it's a personality trait or or exactly what it is, but we we both can get kind of tunnel vision with our goals. And so I think sometimes what happens is we feel so secure in our own relationship. We're like, oh, we've got this. Like, this is good. So we'll just put this over here and then we'll just direct all of our energy and attention into careers or goals or jobs mm-hmm. or this. And I think when that happens too long or if that process goes unchecked for too long, we start to feel that that ache, like we're missing each other. And so we try to recognize that and tend to that as often as we can without letting it get too because then, then you feel like you're taking each other for granted and that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we started recording, you mentioned that you'd had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Was that during this relationship with your husband? Yeah, it was last, last year, last June. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is trying to get pregnant an active part of your relationship? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, it, it was for about eight months leading up to when we discovered we were pregnant and then I was pregnant for 13 weeks, um, before we miscarried. And then just about as soon as I was physically able, but I mean, my body wasn't, my body really wasn't, I think back to a balanced, like hormones back to balance for probably 10 to 12 weeks after the fact, I was so surprised it took that long. Cause I thought for sure, like that first month, we're just going to get back at it, mm-hmm. do this. Um, that was probably me also managing my own anxiety and grief, just trying to feel like I could regain control of it again. But that's been, yeah, a part of our intimate life for, for, yeah, a while now, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. And how does that affect your sex life? Mm. It, it definitely felt like pressure in the very, very beginning. It felt we both felt the pressure in different ways. And then sex became scheduled. And I almost said scheduled and scripted. It, it never became it, never, it didn't go scripted. But um, we followed a calendar and we were tracking and then taking tests. And then, you know, if it, is something wrong with me is something wrong with him and f- Luckily, thankfully, um, sort of a, a blessing and also kind of a frustrating question mark when you have control issues, but, um, we both are healthy as far as any test has shown. I mean, and that was actually really, that was a lovely moment. I love it when you can see the little boy come out in grown men, but he almost, it was like he came home like with the, like the best report card, like, babe, <laughs> my mobility and my count, like, yes, let's tack this up on the fridge. It was so, it was so, I'm like, that's good, babe. I'm <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> but um but no, I think that that definitely impacted things more so in the first 6 months and we it and it probably it probably still plays a role now, but again, I think there's some things that when you look back and upon reflection and get are clearer than they are presently and so how it may be affecting us currently, I don't know if I'm a good judge of that at the moment. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. I feel like it's, it feels easier though than it did in the beginning. So it's not that same sort of like we have to do it today because today is the day at three p.m. when. Well, we're still we're still tracking my ovulation cycle, so yeah. that's still a part of it. But I think because, in an odd way, we've had it and lost it. Um, like we, I think in a in a way, a silver lining that I've sort of painted for myself is that okay, we know we can do this. We've done it mm. once. We know we can. Um, naturally, we, we didn't have any assistance the first time we conceived. So I think it's, we're sort of dancing or rather maybe I'm sort of dancing between, 
uncertainty and trust. So there are moments where I'm like uncertain, how to, how, why is this so challenging? And then there are moments where I've sort of stepped into, we've done this once, like we've had it, we've gone through a terrible experience. We've come out on the other side too. Like we can do this. Like we're, we're going to get through this. So I think it kind of ebbs and flows between both yeah. spaces. Um, And so we're recording this during the time of isolation mm-hmm. and pandemic. And um, how has that affected your, um, well, I can't ask you how it's affected your hormone levels because <laughs> <laughs> that's probably not something you know. Um but do you feel like the stress of this situation is affecting your ability to be really present to baby making? That's a, um, yeah. So yes and no. So I think in a, in a way that I couldn't have predicted, um, so our fertility treatment, cause what we were doing for the last two months, we were doing a process where, um, I would take basically an estrogen boost called, I think it's called God, I almost said COVID. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> called clom- Clomid. It's called Clomid. Oh, right. And so it's like an estrogen boost. And I took that, or I would take that from day four to day nine of my cycle, my monthly cycle. And that is supposed to kind of send all these good juices to my my um, my ovaries and make a, what I would jokingly call a super egg. So this egg is ready to go. Um, because what my doctor believes is that what's part of what this could be is more of a timing issue than, than anything else. So it might be a delayed cycle or the egg, like, so kind of trying to hit the bullseye is more (laughs) what we're focusing on. So, yeah. So anyway, the Clomid gets the egg ready and then, um, I administer a trigger shot to myself and that gives us a 12 hour window of, okay, we got to do this in this time frame because there's a good chance, you know, the egg drop is going to happen then. So we did two months of that and March would have been March or April. I'm kind of losing track of time. March, I think March would have been round three of that, but that had to get put on hold um, because of the social distancing and, you know, doctors needing to protect themselves. And this is not essential, you know, mm-hmm. through, in the eyes of, of medicine. So, um, but to bring this back to your original question, um, in a way, I actually think, I don't know if I could have given myself permission to take that month off of sort of putting my body through that, but that decision being made for me, I feel in this moment actually was a big blessing. Um, because the, the first time we went through that treatment, I was just, I can completely convinced myself, this is it. This is the missing link. This is the missing ingredient. And this is the thing that we're going to need. That's going to make this work. And then it didn't. And that was devastating. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it was like different round of grief. And then the month after that, we did it and I was a little less attached to the outcome, but still really hoping to see that plus sign on the test. Mm-hmm. And we didn't. And so I don't know, again, if I could have had the strength to say, you know what, I just think I need some time off of this roller coaster, but that choice is made for me. And I feel grateful for that. So this month we've focused on, you know, feeling good together and, you know, making the experience just more about pleasure and connection. And as far as my hormones, um, I guess the, here's, here's my gauge to that. I feel more grounded and centered. I tend to run on the anxious side. I haven't felt 
as anxious, but I also think too, something that the gift of my grief from last year taught me was that when there's something so acute and so loud, it, for me, what it does is it kind of dampens the, the, the head chatter. It dampens mm-hmm. all that noise, that background noise. And in a way, this sort of cultural climate, it was so loud outside of me that my internal environment got a lot quieter and I got more still, thankfully. And, but again, I'm going to check myself because <laughs> I've watched a couple of nature documentaries recently and you know, sometimes things don't go so well in nature and sometimes the cute little fuzzy animal gets snatched and it's dinner for a toothier animal. And I lost it. When I mean lost it, it was like watching Sophie's Choice for the first time. And <laughs> oh, God. how is this? So, you know, I may not be as a self-aware as I'm presenting because, <laughs> <laughs> or I might be displacing, I might be displacing my fear and my anxiety and all my emotions into nature documentaries because I don't have a channel for them in my day to day. So that's my answer. <laughs> I love that self-awareness. <laughs> um, what is a question or concern that you have about sex in general or your sex life in particular? Hmm. So a question or concern that I have about sex or my sex life in particular. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And you don't need to force it if there's not one. Yeah, like, no, I just, I think that, um, never even thought about that. I think... So one thing that I've not experienced that I know that I've seen, I've seen in other, other people is sort of an ability to deeply, deeply love and cherish and care someone that they're with and also develop very strong feelings or, uh, an arguably equally strong attachment to someone else too, and sort of hold space for both. Mm-hmm. I have, um, clients that are in open relationships. I have clients that are very fluid, um, clients who in just the, I've seen it modeled either in my professional experience or even my personal experience with some of my, my dear and close friends, that there is definitely a spectrum and a range of what commitment feels like to one person versus what commitment feels like to another or what love and desire permission, all of those things. Um, yeah. So I guess, that's not really even a question. It's just more of a, that's an area of relationships that I am curious about Mm. and maybe open to your thoughts on, but again, it's not really a great question. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, mine, mine wasn't because I didn't really, I didn't really offer one. I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting place for thought experiments Mm. because the truth is that just like, some people are gay and some people are straight Mm -hmm. and a lot of people are somewhere in between Mm -hmm. and you only really have specific knowledge of where you are on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. That same thing is true about monogamy, the spectrum from monogamy to polyamory and everything Mm -hmm. in between. Um, I know that during my time of sexual exploration and sexual adventure, I, I, went full bore into non-monogamous dating, but it became very, and I enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed the opportunity to 
date and have fun and have sex with whoever presented themselves to me as an attractive possibility Mm -hmm. and to maybe have sex with three different people, you know, in a week or -hmm. or whatever. Um, And ultimately, that was not a life choice that I could make. It became very clear to me that I am a primarily monogamous creature, that I... I was able to do that because I wasn't putting, um, I wasn't investing fully in any of those relationships. Mm-hmm. And once I met someone who I really wanted to invest with, it became very easy to let all of those other relationships go. Yeah. And a significant portion of my friends are polyamorous. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watched them navigating this mm-hmm. and, I, it is very clear that those multiple connections, those multiple investments are extremely real. Yeah. I think that, um, because monogamy is the, uh, expected, mm-hmm. you know, cultural, this yeah. is the way it's supposed to be, that it is, it's common for monogamous people to look at polyamorous people and be like, they just have commitment issues, or, you know, they're just fooling themselves or some version of saying that's those aren't real relationships. And that is absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, one of the ways that I have seen that so strongly is during this time of social isolation, when my poly friends are those of them who are living with a primary or a nesting partner are sort of in a time of quote unquote forced monogamy. Hmm. And, and that is really challenging for them because their connections with these other partners are very real and they're having to mourn the fact that they cannot be with their other partners Mm -hmm. and spend quality connected time with them. Yeah. So it's something that I find really interesting to, um, to sort of be able to watch and learn about and, and explore while also knowing that that's, that's not a lifestyle that is, um, that is appropriate for me. Yeah. I, I have the gift, I think of being on the, a very, you know, intimate and confidential side of someone processing their life and their experience. And so I've definitely seen enough, felt enough and experienced enough to, I, to agree with you fully that that is that um, that yeah these connections are real and powerful. I think I maybe in a in my own sort of my maybe one of my own shortcomings or or biases is wanting to feel like I can relate to everyone or wanting to feel like I can relate to every experience and that is one that I I have that I really can't and I think it's almost easier to, or at least for me, it's been, if I don't understand something to, to sort of dismiss it as not being credible as opposed to getting curious about it. Um, and it's, I, it's lovely now to be at this stage in my life and doing what I'm doing to have those biases or those sort of limits in my own experience or limits in my makeup to be challenged. And then my view to be broadened just because it, I, I love, I love that. I mean, I find that so, so 
it just makes life more interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, (laughs) completely. Yeah. Yeah. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls. And it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. And if you have the financial resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Good Girls Talk About Sex. And speaking of Patreon, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. All right. So I'm going to transition us into um, the Q&A. These are more pointed and more explicit questions. Um, I know... (laughs) And you're like, what's more explicit than what we've already talked about? (laughs) And I understand that there may be some of these that you're going to choose not to answer. Okay, great. All right. Mm -hmm. Do you have sex during your period? Yes. What's the approximate number of sex partners you've had? Pass. (laughs) (laughs) Pass, yeah. (laughs) Are you generally more active or more passive during lovemaking? Active. Do you prefer clit stimulation or penetration? Oh, both. (laughs) (laughs) And you're welcome to expand on these answers. They don't have to be. Oh, it doesn't have to be rapid fire. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. It's sort of like, what do you like? Chocolate or peanut butter? Give me a Reese's cup, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. do you think it's generally easy or challenging for you to orgasm? Um, when I'm at my best, super duper easy. Um, when I, and that's usually a good indication that I'm, that I'm 
not in touch with something else that I need to pay attention to. Um, or at least that's been the case for me so far in this stage of my life being 35. Um, you know, I really when it's like, easy, that means you're not, no, when, oh, when, when it's, it's challenging. So when it's gotcha. just not happening or I'm finding myself struggling or getting frustrated, what that usually means is there's some other area of my life that I'm not tending to that needs my, that, that needs my attention. Cause, um, the more, that's probably all I'll say about that. But yeah, that I, that's usually a good indication that like, Oh, you're not, you're not uh, on top of something else. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Have you ever faked an orgasm? Yeah. Is that something that you've had to do since you've been married or with your current partner? No. What is your favorite way to orgasm during sex? My favorite way? Yeah. Uh, like, is there a particular position or a particular oh, activity? Oh, I just, we, so I just watched this, um, new, there's a new comedy special on Netflix by Neil Brennan, who's the, who was the writing partner with Dave Chappelle for the Chappelle show. He has this great bit. It's called three mics. I highly encourage it. It's really, really fun. Um, but it's also very poignant and touching and just, it's a really beautiful comedic piece of art. But anyway, he does this one bit about how, you know, people talk about how there are like 180 different sexual positions. And of course the joke is he was like, no, there's not, there's like five. And so he goes through the different, the, the different basic positions. Um, and my husband and I, we were watching it together and we were just kind of cracking up watching it. But I think, I think probably my favorite is um, on top facing reverse. That's probably my favorite. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Can you orgasm from intercourse alone without any other stimulation? I have, and I can. It is less common that that's how it happens, though. Yeah. Do you prefer the orgasm from masturbating or from sex with a partner? Hmm. Gosh, that feels like another peanut butter and chocolate question. (laughs) I mean, I – yeah, I – Sometimes, sometimes when it's just me, I like that because, um, it's just about me and whatever feels good or whatever I'm in the mood for at that time. And then sometimes I want it to be an experience. So yeah, I, I don't think I prefer one or the, over the other. What kind of touch do you enjoy most? Hmm. I think not, not just sexually, but I think in, in, in all ways, I love massage. Love, 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 love. Did I mention love? <laughs> love massage. It's it's a regular part of my self care. Um, of course, not during quarantine and social yeah. distancing and all that. But I love massage. I love it when my husband massage me. My mom and I during holidays will trade like neck rubs. Like we'll <laughs> we'll get a pie out of the oven and then we'll just swap trading neck rubs with each other. Um, my girlfriends and I, we you know. Back before a lot of my friends started having kids, we would go on little trips together. And um, I mean, because a lot of them have very young kids right now. So we'll get back to that soon. But anyway, we would do like hair therapy where we would just kind of play with each other's hair or braid yes. each other's hair or, you know, just do that sweet little touch that I just love that it's not exactly massage, but just sometimes it would, you know, sometimes we would even trade neck rubs and actually <laughs> they're, they're at one point in my life. Gosh, when was this college? I think this was college. I think it was, I think I tried making it, I tried positioning it like a theater exercise, but I basically just did a massage train. 
Yeah. And and that's that oh, massage trains were my favorite. If I could get a massage train into any kind of social situation, I was doing a really good job. <laughs> Love that. What are your hard red lines? Your absolute nose insects. Mm. Um, I, I'll say, so without getting into the specifics, cause I'm not comfortable getting too, too, too specific, mm-hmm. but I will say that I don't like the feeling of something being done to me or on me. I, if, if I feel like if it's, just, if it's not an experience with me and not something we're experiencing together, if it's something someone wants to do to me, then I shut off and I'm like, nope, hard, no hard. Yeah. I get that. Mm -hmm. Are there sexual things you've tried before that you never want to do again? Uh, Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) How do you feel about your partner masturbating without you? Oh, I encourage it. I, 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 I encourage it. Do you have hair down there or are you bare? <laughs> I'm going to pass. I have no problem telling you, but I'm just thinking about that being in the world. So I'm going to pass yes. on that one. Um, All right. yeah. I'm actually going to skip a couple of these because I, I yeah, I feel like they're probably going to be the same. Um, do you enjoy dirty talk during sex? Um, honestly, I get kind of immature with that and it becomes like it. I mean, I can't even think of the last time it, I was in a situation where that, where that came up, but I, I just, I do, I get kind of immature with it. And then I just start to laugh the one or two times I remember that happening. (laughs) (laughs) Do you enjoy laughter during sex? Oh yes. Always. I, I think the whole, I don't take the act of sex too seriously. I mean, it's, but I, I just find that the more laughter to me, I think runs parallel to safety. If I'm laughing, it's, I'm feeling relaxed in that, in whatever it is I'm doing. And so, um, yeah, I think it just helps me to have that permission to like, you know, let me just change positions like, whoop, whoop. And then I slip a little and then it just, I I like being able to laugh at that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite part of your body? Ooh, um, favorite part of my body. I like my, my neck and decollete. I like, you know, wearing, shirts or clothes or dresses that, that accentuate that. Yeah. What's your least favorite part of your body? Mm. It used to be my skin. Um, I've had like precancerous cells removed um, that, that basically they're dysplastic nevus, I think is what it's called. It's the cells that could turn into melanoma. And so I've had to have like several, removed and biopsied and tested and gone back in to take more tissue. And then before that, there was a lot of, a lot of dealing with acne and hormonal acne, which, you know, it just hated that whole cycle. And so I just remember, I remember the first time I saw the movie face off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. And I was like, God, if I could just swap skin with someone, I would do (laughs) that. Um, I don't feel that way as much now, but I would say, hmm. Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that'll be my answer. Cause I don't know if I want to go picking for a flaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I support you in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could correct her on now? Oh, 
Um, belief that I had about sex as a child. Um, so as open as I said, you know, my, I felt like my parents were about talking to me about sex. There was this sort of, I think, unspoken agreement, not just in my home, but I, in the, in the world that, um, that being open about your, which is, I mean, really speaks to the heart of, I think, why your podcast is so beautiful and important and the message it's putting out into the world is fantastic. Um, but that there were certain rules that I needed to ascribe to, like, um, this many, like, don't have more, like, it's okay to explore, but don't, don't have too many partners or, mm-hmm. you know, it's okay to, it's okay to enjoy sex, but like, but also, make sure that you're, that you're being safe. Like, don't be, don't be risky. Like it's okay to be provocative or explore dress, but you don't want to invite the wrong kind of attention. So, and again, that, 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 that wasn't explicitly in my home, but it's sort of a pervasive feeling. And I think the qualifier of the word too, don't be too much. Don't want too much. Don't ask for too much. Don't do too much. Don't, but don't be inexperienced, like lady in the street, freak in the bed, like that whole sort of seesaw or, or sort of teeter totter of what's too much, what's asking for too much, what's wanting too much. And I think trying to juggle all that and get off is impossible. (laughs) So it's like, it's like, yes, it's just, so I think if I could have just told my like sweet, innocent, little sexually developing self, um, trust your pleasure, just trust your pleasure. And let that guide you. Like, you know, when you don't feel safe, honor that. When it doesn't yeah. feel good, say something. Just like honor, honor that, that gut instinct. Um, because I think when I didn't honor that, that's usually when I got hurt. And that's by no means me blaming myself mm-hmm. or at all, but I, I can look back and see that there were moments, there were those feelings where I'm like, gosh, I didn't like the way he just said that to me or I didn't really care for the way that interaction went or that felt a little harsh or disrespectful. And and I feel like trusting those little breadcrumbs and also following the things that feel good. It's not just about f- trusting the discomfort, but also honoring the pleasure. Like and yeah. I, I'll have more of that, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. I love that. Danielle, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time and opening up in the way that you have. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. And just I'm honored to be able to be present with your your listeners and your audience. And um, thank you for thank you again for your time. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirls talk about sex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States 
to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720 Good Sex. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.